What's up, everybody? It's your girl, E, and welcome to another episode of The Call, where we talk to wildly inspiring women about their journey to answer their life's calling. So, Star Wars came out this weekend, and for a very brief second, I actually considered going to see it, which, okay, it's a a very big deal for me, considering the fact that I don't actually love sci-fi. But after talking to this week's guest, I was reminded just how important science fiction is, even for those of us who didn't grow up making obscure Star Wars references or Star Trek references. Oh, my gosh. Adrienne Marie Brown is an activist, organizer, facilitator, writer, poet, and passionate sci-fi fan. She's introduced or reintroduced an entire generation of people to the idea that the only way that we can truly radically change the world is to imagine a new one. And that's exactly what science fiction does. She draws heavily on the works of women like Octavia Butler and Ursula Le Guin. We reference them a lot in the interview, so definitely go check them out afterwards. Adrienne really breaks down ways of living and thinking and being that bring us closer to the type of world and society that most of us can only dream of right now. She's the author of two of my favorite books, Octavia's Brood, a collection of short stories that she co-edited, and Emergent Strategy, which we talk about in depth in this interview. I kind of nerd out, y'all. When people ask me my political philosophy, I'm just like, go check out Adrian's blog. So in this conversation, we talk about how to create the stories that can transform our society. And a lot of the stories that come out are actually about people galvanizing into taking direct action. How ants and birds have a lot to teach us. You know, that flock of birds is called a murmuration. There's this gorgeous natural phenomenon that's happening. And I'm like, how do we move like that? When do we move like that? what one thing she wanted to say to President Obama, and she did. They sort of sneak it up on you. I didn't have time to necessarily like gather all of my preparation of like, here's what I want to say to Obama in my lifetime. (laughs) And what skills you need to survive the end of the world. If we can fall down and figure out like, how do we reach out and hold on to each other inside of this? I think that's when we begin to see Oh, survival, maroon societies, autonomous zones. This is one of my favorite conversations ever. So sit back, take some notes, and get ready to be inspired by Adrienne Marie Brown here on The Call. And I'm really excited to talk to you both about your work, which I think could not be more timely for where we are as a country, where we are as a species, frankly. And so I want to talk today with you a little bit about that, but also I'm so interested in you as a person, a human, a woman, and what has brought you to this work and how mm-hmm. how you kind of have the insight um, that gave this gift of emergent strategy, your book, uh, to the world. So. Yay. We'll talk about both of those things, but so yeah. let's start with emergent strategy, right? Okay, um, great. What is it? How do you define emergent strategy? So I would say uh, emergent strategy for me is a way of looking at the natural world, um, looking at everything that is, and then looking at even everything we can imagine <laughs> um, and really figuring out like how do we choose the way we want to be as a species in the world and how do we do that in an iterative way, the way that change actually happens on the planet. Um, mm-hmm. And I, a key thing I think to understand for it is is what emergence actually is. And I go by the definition that's in the book. It's um, Nick's definition and it's basically emergence is um, a series of small, relatively small interactions and um, and connections uh, that lead to these massive patterns and systems, right? And it's like, how do those patterns arise out of those small interactions? And mm-hmm. when you start tuning into that, you realize like, oh, everything large is made up of all these very small interactions. And that actually the world changes through those small interactions. So Mm -hmm. for us, if we're in movement work and we're trying to create change, how do we start to really tune into the small interactions, the fractal things, the decentralized things that are happening all over the place and get really curious about those Mm -hmm. and then start to act from that place. (laughs) So You've called that work science fictional behavior, right? The the work that we do is is science fictional. Um, Yeah. Because it's focused on how what we do today shapes the future. Exactly. And, you know, that really came like uh, the book that 
that came out before this that I worked on before this was called Octavia's Brood, science mm-hmm. fiction from social justice movements that I did with Walida E. Marisha. And, you know, I think we had that awakening together of, oh, you know, the things that we're trying to do that we call social change, climate change, environmental justice, all of those things are changes that we're looking for something we haven't lived yet. We're, we're trying, we're seeing something in, a, in our minds and saying this is actually how it should be, but we haven't actually experienced it yet. And so as long as we're talking about things we haven't experienced, we're working inside the realm of imagination. We're working inside the realm of like, based on what is now, we want to project into the future what we could imagine could uh-huh. be. And then we want to take responsibility for shaping what we think could be, which feels uh-huh. like, you know, to un- it's all in the lineage of Octavia Butler's work who was a black science fiction writer and her work was really, you know, how do we take the reins off and take the boxes down and start to really work outside of all of what is now to figure out how Mm -hmm. we need to be. Mm -hmm. I I saw you at, I think it was um, the Obama foundation summit. I I saw a clip of, of one (laughs) of your panels. (laughs) Yeah. It was Look at you, fancy! Girl. I was like, "What? I get to talk here?" <laughs> so, <laughs> and you didn't you sit? Great. You sat at the table. Wasn't President Obama at your I table? Did. Well, I did. Yeah, he was at my table. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right? Not way you were his. No, and it was kind of a. Um, it was a. Re- it was a really interesting. Uh, you know, people keep asking me about the summit. I'm like, yeah, I was at that summit. It was very dazzling. Everyone was very charming and smart and wonderful. He was very charming. And, you know, but they sort of sneak it up on you. Like, they're like, oh, you're just going to go to this table. Oh, just pick up your badge. You're going to this table. And no one tells you until you get to the table and you see his name there that that's the table. Um, So I didn't have, you know, it's kind of great as an emergent strategy moment because I didn't have time to necessarily, like, gather all of my preparation of, like, here's what I want to say to Obama in my lifetime. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was really just like, okay, girl, here you are at this table. You're wearing a totally see-through lace top. That wasn't planned. And you're going to do this right now, and you're just going to have a good time. And so I really focused on – it felt important to me to make sure that he knew – that I work with the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter. Um, that felt really important for me to say to his face because, I, you know, I wonder how much gets through to through all the filters um, mm-hmm. that I imagine someone in his position sits in. And, you know, that I'm like, oh, he sits in a place where, like, surely he's heard that there's this Black identity extremist thing emerging. And, um, you know, th- these ways that our work is being... Um, they're trying to marginalize it and trying to attack it really with these, these um, putting these labels on us that actually don't have anything to do with what we're up to. Um, so it felt important to just articulate that and to be like, yeah, you know, the main thing that I'm on this planet to do is really to cultivate love and particularly black love, um, really generating a sense of black dignity and a sense that like we have the right to be here, the right to take up space and to be brilliant, to love each other and to demand that that the rest of the planet, the rest of our species actually not just makes room for us, but honors us in our full humanity, right? Like that's what we're here to do. Um, so to sit there and just be able to say that, like I am, you know, I, I did run Ruckus. I do have a um, direct action love and deep commitment to our right to take action. And I'm going to sit at this table with you too and have a, have a great conversation. Um, and you know, I'm like, we're on very different paths for how we make change in the world, but I definitely, I see him trying, <laughs> I know, I'm right, trying, right. you know, so it was that kind of conversation. I love that you said that that's what you're put on this earth to do. Yeah. How did you come to that realization? Like, what was the journey of Adrian oh. Marie Brown that led you to that <laughs> sense of clarity? Girl, you know, I mean, I think I'm every day I'm figuring it out again and again. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll say that. Like, it doesn't feel like, oh, I figured it out and now I'm just coasting. It more feels like I come across new challenges each day. And what comes up in me as a first response is like, is this love or not love? Um, is this love flowing towards me? Can I flow love back towards it? Is love available here? Um, when I make mistakes, you know, I'm like, can I love myself through this mistake, past this mistake, in spite of this mistake? Because um, I make mistakes all the time. And it feels very important to me, actually, to 
um, in any way that I'm perceived as a leader to be perceived as a leader who makes mistakes <laughs> and not <laughs> as one who, you know, has it all figured out. Um, but I, you know, I think it's also in my root system of like who I am. I, my parents, um, fell in love as an interracial couple in the deep South in the mid seventies. And, mm. um, we were raised in a, in a, you know, stewing in a cauldron of love. My sisters and I were, I really felt like from a very early age, the first thing we were even given as identity was beloveds, you know, like my parents just loved us. And it's not like they were perfect humans either. You know, they were still struggling through a lot of their own ways that they were brought up um, and, and belief systems that they had around race and gender and power and um, punishment and all kinds of things. And inside of that, I never doubted once that I was really truly a beloved on this planet and that love made the things that seemed impossible possible. Um, cause mm-hmm. my parents, you know, the way that they fell in love was something that wasn't supposed to be able to happen. Um, and yet they persisted, <laughs> you know, they very right, much fell in right. love and they're still in love. Um, and they're still growing and learning together and our family is still growing and learning together. So I think that that's down in my root system. And there have been formative moments in my life where it just became clear that I, I had to go with my gut or I had to make a choice that was like, I've got to stand in my dignity here if I want to sleep tonight. Um, And I feel like love is the thing that has made, like, I've never been able to make those moves from a place of anger. Like whenever I've been angry, I've kind of flailed around (laughs) and become very incoherent and, um, you know, kind of increase the pain around me. That's a brilliant insight because- Uh It's not just from um, kind of a theoretical place. You're actually saying like anger doesn't work for me. Yeah, you know, well, it doesn't work for me, and I I rarely see it work. I, I think it's an important emotion, and mm-hmm. I've done some writing about this. I think it's actually an incredibly important thing because I think it indicates there's something not right here. Something needs to be righted here. Um, but I think that a lot of times we stay at the level of anger. We don't get up under it, right? Of like, what is the anger protecting? What is it trying to alert us to? <laughs> you know, like, uh, so I'm like, what is this? I'm angry right now. What does this anger want me to know? And the way I'm structured, most of the time when I'm angry, it's actually because I'm hurt and I'm really disappointed. And like someone has let me down or I have let myself down. And it's actually the worst when I've let myself down. Right. When I've made a decision that I'm like, I know this isn't aligned with what I want to be and how I want to be. And that's when I can be the most wounded as a creature and the most mm-hmm. lashing out. Like, who can I blame? <laughs> you know, where can I put right. this? Um, and those have been times when I have not been able to, to, you know, what I would think of as like pivot and really act from my dignity. But love when I've been like, who do I really love? You know, I've gone through organizational traumas. Um, where I was like, I just want to walk away from everything. And then I was like, well, I really love black folks. And so in this situation, you know, I had one situation where I was like, in this situation, you know, there's not there's not much I can actually control or do here, mm-hmm. but I can cede this territory to black folks rather than white folks. And that's what I'll do, right? Or I can cede this territory towards radical women. Um, or I can see, you know, like I, I can look and say, I, I don't know what to do here, but I do know mm-hmm. who I want to focus on investing in. And who I want to support in leadership. And then in my own leadership, love has also allowed me to figure out where it makes sense for me to make my offer. I have a lot of optimism and a lot of belief, right? Like I I come into a space like we can do this. I believe we can do this. I believe in us. And so that makes for a really good facilitator. Um, I think that's my best quality of the work that I offer as a social justice facilitator is that I walk in the room like we're going to win. And we're going to do a great job here. Like whatever we do is going to be the right work. And I believe in us. Now, that doesn't necessarily make for a great um, organizer, right? Because, you know. (laughs) Why not? Well, because you have to be able to look at the landscape with a more critical lens than I tend to operate from. Um, And so when I realized that, you know, that I would be sitting with organizers and feeling like, you know, they're talking circles around me. (laughs) They're talking circles Uh around me. I have no idea what's going on with them. But when I would drop to the emotional level, I could see stuff that they couldn't see. Um, Uh So I would be like, okay, you understand what's happening on, you know, like this electoral strategy and who's who's coming for who here and there. Um, But then on an emotional level, I would be able to see like there's almost a, a wall between this brilliant person and that brilliant person. And 
if they could bring that wall down, that brilliance could flow towards each other in a way that could create something bigger than what either of them has to offer. And I can focus on helping to lower that wall and to bring them closer to each other in right relationship to each other. It is really important. And it it kind of illuminates a theme that I've seen throughout your work and even throughout your language. What you've said um, during this conversation so far is often about seeing things, seeing things that others can't see or having Mm -hmm. a vision or seeing beyond. You have um, after this is terrible to say, I don't even remember which horrible mass shooting it was. I believe it was after Las Vegas. Um, You posted something on your Facebook page that said, we're living in impossible times. If it were fiction, it would be critiqued as hyperbolic. If it were nightmares, we would never sleep. Uh, We're living in times created by our own species. Our visions, there's that idea of a vision again, our ropes through the devastation. And then this is the part that I love. said, look further ahead, like our ancestors did. Look further, extend, hold on, pull, and evolve. And that Mm. idea of looking further ahead like our ancestors did is actually, it's funny, that's why I brought up the Obama Foundation Summit because when you were there, Uh (laughs) there's this clip. This is now how I articulate to people what it means to have kind of a a radical social justice imagination. This is the best example I've heard. You said, imagine (laughs) how folks who were in the middle of slavery and still dared to hope and believe, how did they do that, right? They All they had ever known Everything behind them in the past looked like this, Mm -hmm. and they weren't close enough to the end of slavery yet to see what freedom looked like. And yet somehow those folks who were in the middle of that trajectory, there were those who had hope and who believed in a freedom that they had never seen. And that's the kind of imagination that we need today, right? Yes, yes. How do we develop that? How does one develop that? That's a great question. I mean, I think that part of it, um, you know, when we were moving around the country with Octavia's Brood, um, one of the things we were doing was sci-fi writing workshops. And it was a very, um, there was this amazing template for them that Walida created with one of our contributors, Morgan Bell Phillips. And the idea of the workshops is that folks come into a space together and we identify an issue or kind of a movement area, but an issue in your local community that needs some visionary fiction medicine. And we identified that, you know, visionary fiction um, is something that it articulates not just like, okay, this is fiction, I'm making something up, but it really says, oh, I recognize that change happens from the bottom up and not the top down. And I recognize that I want to center um, those who have been traditionally put on the edges. So I want to center women and trans folks and people of color and those with disabilities. I want to put them um, in the center or you know, have the whole thing be a real equalized space. And I recognize that I you know, I want to write something that couldn't star Matt Damon. I want to recognize that, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I really intentionally want to say bottom up grassroots solution oriented and neither utopian nor dystopian, um, but really understand that the two almost always go together. They work together Ooh, in concert. What do you mean by that? Well, anytime you have people living in a dystopia there's people who are benefiting from that, right? Dystopia is not like in our nature. We don't like in our nature say like, let me just make a horrible living situation. Um, The reason we end up in these, you know, we live on an abundant planet with abundant natural resources. So the only reason any of us would be going without those resources is because someone else is overusing them, over accessing them. So we see that over and over again, where people are like, oh, I will over access the land and the labor um, because I really need a luxury experience of a, you know, a yacht or, you know, three houses or whatever it is, right? So what we see now, the stratification, the class stratification has gotten so severe that, you know, the numbers come out each year. I feel like the numbers get more severe where it's like the top one percent has, you know, as much as the bottom 50 percent of people on the planet. Right. Stuff like this. And you're like, what? You know, how did we get there? And are we complicit? Are we allowing this to continue to happen? And I think what it is, is that because we're bought into the concept of utopia, um, that we all think that we're, if we could just have access to it, then it would be okay to have utopia. And if we're experiencing utopia, if we're experiencing that level of sort of luxury and having no cares in the world, no worries, um, then it makes it hard to realize that other people are in dystopia in order to support that. And we see this in cities, it gets very 
intimate, right? Um, in DC, you drive a few blocks and you've moved from a utopia to a dystopia. In New York, it's a few blocks. You know, this is, I went to um, Johannesburg in South Africa and there's like up a hill, there's this utopia of gorgeous, massive mansion, white houses full of white people. And then down at the bottom of the hill are all of these um, slums that are full of folks who are getting in buses to drive up the hill to work in them. And we look in, in the U.S. now, I, I travel so many places and I'm like, what's really changed here, right? You have this utopian, dystopian narrative. And I go a little too far with it. My grandfather would be appalled because my grandfather was a Christian evangelical. Um, and I really think that heaven is included in this sort of utopian, dystopian um, framework, right? That we set it up like, oh, you live through this sort of dystopian situation now, and then later you'll get to go to heaven if you're good, You'll get to go to heaven and you'll be in a total utopia, but you can only, you know, that utopia still depends on there being a hell. Like there's got to be this other place where people are just suffering because they're not good. And then that somehow that the absence of those people creates the shape of heaven. And I think that there is something really fundamentally problematic about that ever being um, the way that we want to structure our current lifestyle or our future lifestyle. Right. So right. we have to instead, you know, for me, I'm like, I'm not interested in either of those. I really want to be in experimentation around what it looks like not to need either of those, but to really live in a situation where people have enough and we have a real sense of what it is to be satisfied and satisfiable. And we have a real sense of what it means to be with each other, like in right, right. space and right relationship. So one of the key pieces from emergent strategy is that flocking, that idea of like, what's the right amount of distance between us, but proximity and communication that allows us to really move together elegantly. Flocking and like birds, right? Like flocking birds. like birds. Flocking like birds or moving like a school of fish or, you know, that flock of birds is called a murmuration. And people see these all the time. Like you look out in the world and you're just like, oh, there's this gorgeous natural phenomenon that's happening. And it's really quite incredible. And I'm like, how do we move like that? When do we move like that? Um, is it possible to move like that even if we don't feel like, oh, I know those people? A lot of what you said, you've referenced, um, obviously, you know, Octavia Butler and, and you know, science fiction work, the, the sci-fi stories that you yeah. actually um, requested that organizers create and write for Octavia's Brood. Right. Um, and then even when you were talking about this idea of a utopia and a dystopia, you referenced the heaven and hell kind of biblical narrative in that story. Um, but what was jumping out and I, what I was thinking in my mind was the ones who walk away from Amalas, right? Oh, yes. That's or my Ursula babe. Le Guin. <laughs> yes. yes. So this idea that there's a utopia and everyone is happy as long as we don't acknowledge what is happening here, this horrible, horrible thing in existence. But we all have to look at it. And in that story, you reach a certain age and they take you down to this little basement where you see this child that is kept in squalid conditions and suffering and tortured. And you re recognize, oh, this is the cost for the sand and the beaches and the horses and the gorgeous experience of life that I get to have. And I feel like the same thing happens here in the U.S., um, at least, where you you do reach a certain age and then it's like, okay, um, I can no longer pretend that I don't know there are homeless people and people who don't have enough to eat and people who are not getting access to education and that I don't know there are sex slaves and, and that there are places where slavery is still happening and that I don't know that, um, that you know, there's just like so many horrors and you, you get to a certain point, and especially as the internet continues to grow and grow and, you know, who knows how much longer we'll have access to these things, but you know, as for right now, in this instant, this moment, we know like in real time, a lot of the horrors that are happening on the planet and how are you going to continue to benefit from that suffering? Um, if you find out like, oh, here's who made your phone and here are the slave like conditions that they had to be in to do that. Um, you know, how quickly do you still run to the store and get your phone? <laughs> right. And, right. I mean, right. I think that like for many people on the planet, they look at like just the average American as living inside of a utopian condition. And we have, you know, so many folks who are like, oh, I don't know about that. I don't have a concept of that. Um, and then I kind of look, you know, I'm like, really? It feels like you have to look away. Like you have to actively avoid looking to still believe that, you know, after a certain age in your life. But what happens when we look? I'll just say this brings me back to the science fiction writing piece, because mm -hmm. 
when we pr- bring people into those workshops, a lot of times the, the medicine they need is like, how do we actually handle what we are expected to know? And how do we actually start to pivot in our behaviors? Right. Yeah. Because folks will name stuff like, oh, it's education, it's water, it's this, it's that. It's like, I live in Detroit and that means I'm right next to Flint and that we have water crisis here. And then Flint has been without water for the longest time. And, um, and it's like, and we still go on day to day, right? Like everyone still goes about their business in some ways. And so I think about that, like, okay, what are the stories we need to write uh, about the kind of society we would be that would pause, that would be like, we will not continue until these folks have clean water. Nothing mm-hmm. will continue until they have clean water. And a lot of the stories that come out are actually about people galvanizing into taking direct action. And just for my audience, for the sake of my audience, for those who might not know, how do you define direct action? What is direct action? Oh, well, I, I define direct action as a disruption or an action that speaks directly from an oppressed people to those who are hold a decision-making power. Um, so it's not, you know, like we live in this now kind of, I, I say democracy with my fingers in quotes um, around that. Um, right. This sort of like representative thing that has very little contact between those who are voting and those who are elected, at least at the federal level, right? So, and especially now, like with the electoral college, what we're st- coming to understand is like, oh, the popular vote actually has nothing to do with what's happening <laughs> um, at the electoral level. So, you know, we live in, in that kind of condition and we're trying to figure out like, how do we shape the future? And so direct action says we can't count on that kind of representative multi-layered process between us and those who are shaping power. Sometimes we have to go directly into their offices and lock ourselves to the desk and say, we're not going to leave until we have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, um, like the lunch counter sit-ins, I think are such a powerful example that still resonates as one of the most impactful direct actions that's ever happened of we're going to sit at this lunch counter and you have told us that it is not possible for us to sit next to each other and we're going to show you that it's possible. And so from here on out, you may hate it, but you can't deny that it's possible because you've seen it. Um, or people put themselves at risk. You know, the powerful actions that Black Lives Matter has done. Um, I think of Alicia Garza and them all, you know, chained such to the BART so that it's like if the BART moves, they're all hurting, right? But they have uh-huh. said, we will not we will not come off of this. You're going to, we're going to pause and shut the system down for the length of time that Michael Brown was laying in the street um, because we need to bring attention to this matter. Uh You know, it's so interesting to see that, you know, this was not the center of conversation five years ago, even though there's, there was amazing work happening then there was something that, that they were able to strike into with those actions and that Ferguson was able to strike into with those actions and that Blackout Collective has continued to help people striking into with these actions um, that just to me, it, it blows my mind, but it says we're going directly to speak to power. And when I was at the Ruckus Society, um, that's what we trained people in. And they, they still that's the basically the heart of what Ruckus is. It's, it's just like they're they've gone above and beyond anything that I could have done. It's like such an amazing organization, but it's a small, scrappy organization that says, we train people in how to do nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience and to understand the role that nonviolent direct action has in shaping and changing a society. Like uh-huh. we, we, you basically cannot look at a period in history and see that change has happened without these sort of key ingredients. And they're almost always, there's a, a group of folks doing nonviolent direct action. There's a group of folks working as, you know, sort of insiders. There's a group of folks who are like, we're going to arm ourselves and be in struggle. There's a group of folks who are like, we have gone completely cynical. Like all of those things coexist and somewhere mm-hmm. in there, um, the shift emerges. So are all of these things, like these direct actions, the, um, you know, imaginative storytelling and visioning, are all of these the skills that we're going to need to, podcast plug for you, survive the end of the world? (laughs) That's the name of your podcast, which I I love that title because it does every day when we're watching the news or you don't have to watch the news depending on how close in proximity you are um, to so much of the suffering that's happening right now. But so even when you walk out the door, or when you go to work every day, it does feel like it's the end of the world. And yet the title is not like what to do at the end of the world. It's how do you actually survive it, yes. which I love. So yes. how do you, how, how can we make it through? Um, so much of what we talk about is about changing the world or trying yeah. to save the world. But you've basically said, 
Um, well, maybe the end is coming. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, we I survive. think, um, you know, first shout out to my friend Mafa Malik, who actually named our podcast. Um, mm-hmm. We sort of put out the call. Um, but, you know, my sister and I realized that we were having conversations all the time. And she is a social justice organizer who um, lives in rural Minnesota with her little babies and, um, and her amazing husband and just this beautiful little family out there really living on the land. And then I have moved intentionally to Detroit, um, which is, uh, you know, to me, one of the most exciting experiments in what happens when folks try to really put their hands, get their hands dirty with shaping democracy and governance and really figuring this stuff out. And we were like, we're talking about how to survive the end of the apocalypse all the time. (laughs) Um, And we recognize that it's coming up in a lot of ways. It was like, how do we talk to each other? How do we generate new stories? Like fundamental, like hardcore, you know, tangible and material survival skills. You know, like, do you know the plants around you and how to eat them? And, you know, I, I think of like my apocalypse survival skill as being a doula. You know, I'm just sort of like, look, if anybody needs help having babies, you know, I can help with that. Um, uh-huh. You know, but just trying to figure out like what tangible skills we had towards the apocalypse. But in those conversations, we recognize like apocalypse is happening all the time. It's really a relative thing. And that there's many that have happened before. You know, we call them genocide or Holocaust or other things, but there have been apocalypses for different societies. There's apocalypses happening now. Um, our parents lived for a while in the South Pacific. You know, my dad was in the military for 30 years. And a lot of the the places that we would go and see them down there are, are underwater being evacuated right now. Um, we've just come through a year where between the hurricanes, earthquakes, and the fires, there are just millions of people that are one step removed from all of us who have gone through an apocalypse. Like everything about their world has ended and changed. So for us, we were just like, well, so how do we do this in a graceful way, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and how do we do this in a rigorous way? And how do we stay curious? Um, you know, when you fall down, like I recently, (laughs) I was just, um, I went to give this workshop that was like spell casting workshop and I get down there and I'm, I'm sort of getting ready, getting in the place to do it. And I totally just fall down. I guess slipped on something on the ground and I just fell. And I realized that like five years ago, a fall like that would have taken me out. Like it would have been like, I can't do the workshop. I can't do anything. Like I just fell down and that's it. <laughs> like oh, I'm out, no. you know, um, like I'm in pain or I'm embarrassed or whatever, you know, like um, any, any number of things. And this time I just like fell down, popped back up. I was like, I'm good actually. And I realized like, oh, this is what this Again, I realize some this is kind of the core skill set that I feel like I've been learning and that I feel like is crucial for Holocaust and genocide and apocalypse survival is to recognize like we we fall down as humans. We fall down at a societal level, at a collective level, at an individual level. We fall down. And, you know, sometimes that falling down, like get we we get fallen upon, if you understand mm-hmm. what I mean. So mm-hmm. like if I look at um, the atrocities that happen you know, that Germany enacted upon Jewish people and and everyone else during the Holocaust. And I look now at the uh, what I consider the atrocities that are happening from the state of Israel to Palestinians now. I'm like, that falling down continues. And how do we figure out how to stand back up into some dignity that isn't about creating harm and pain for someone else. Okay, so now I'm going to hear that gospel song, we fall down, but we get up. up, I'm going to hear that in such a different, more radical way now. Right. (laughs) And that piece that, that, you know, because it continues to say, because a saint is just a sinner who fell down and then got up. Right. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I really think that for our societies, it's like we're all falling down all the time. And if we ever think that we're better than anyone else who is falling down, who is hitting some moral low ground, who is having a total breakdown or unable to continue, I think that's where we, we we can't get up and we won't survive the apocalypse. We'll so we'll be like up on our high horses too high and we'll still get eliminated, right? But I think mm-hmm. if we can fall down and figure out like how do we reach out and hold on to each other inside of this, I think that's when we begin to see Oh, survival, maroon societies, autonomous zones. There are places that are exciting, but in part they're exciting because of the ways that they are saying, we don't know how to do this. We are going to figure this out by experimenting and learning together and kind of falling down through 
capitalism, falling away from mm-hmm. capitalism, falling away from patriarchy, falling away from it, even though we don't know what to do. And also holding on to each other. Also and then holding, holding on, on to, each, to each, other. each other. You talk about you know? that, that part of emergent strategy is looking at the natural world for those systems yes. and behaviors. And you give the analogy of the ants, right? Yes. So t- talk to me about that. My ants. Well, I mean, and one of the things is like the ants, uh, and this has been, you can find all these little videos, especially with all the flooding and the hurricane stuff that's been happening now, is that ants in a flood cling to each other and they cling to each other until they make a surface that other ants can float on. Um, and so it means that the majority of the ants are able to survive and they float together until they find a surface that they can all climb up onto. And I keep thinking about that for us as I'm like, how do we hold on to each other um, when so much of our instinct and so much we've been trained is to push each other away? And Mm -hmm. what I see from a social justice, like from a facilitation standpoint, is that that instinct to push each other away, to um, tear each other down in the name of like making ourselves feel better or feel stronger or feel more, you know, just like morally just, um, it doesn't actually serve us. Like figure out how do we hold on to each other? does keep us alive. And I've been part of, you know, part of transformative justice processes and part of other processes where folks were like, I don't know if I'm going to even make it through this day. Um, And feeling the way that people actually reached out literally um, and emotionally, spiritually, and held on to each other and made it through. And, you know, when you see a group of people with disabilities, a group of people with mental illness, a group of people who are suicidal and depressed, a group of people who have every reason to just say, we're not going to continue playing this game (laughs) in this country. We're too oppressed. It's too much. And yet we reach out, hold on to each other and we continue. Um, To me, there's nothing like that. And it's why I keep going with my work. So I'm hearing all of this insight and this brilliance and these stories, <laughs> and I keep wanting to know, like, what was little Adrian Marie Brown like? Were you, uh-huh. you know, writing all these <laughs> stories and walking around telling people, dudes, look at the ants, look at the yeah, ants. Like, did, so did you have this insight naturally or did you have teachers that kind of um, brought this to your, yeah. your memory, your mind? That's a great question. You know, I mean, I... I have like memories of my childhood and then I have blank spots, you know, like there's a lot that's not there that I'm not sure if that's just the nature of my memory or if some of it's trauma related or other things. But when I do look back, I feel like there was a lot of, um, I think I was a pretty precocious child. I, my brain has always moved very, very quickly. And because of that, I've always tried to do too many things at the same time. So I think at a young age, you know, like I started rejecting (laughs) systems very quickly because I was like, well, that system doesn't, it's not moving at the pace that I'm moving at. So that's not going to work for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, you know, which meant I got in arguments with my teachers, um, because I could always imagine a different way that we could be doing things. And, um, I think when I finally was able to be a facilitator in my own right, there was a way that I felt a lot of relief in that because it was like, oh, that's like, I haven't, you know, I I never was like, oh, I want to be the, the star or I want to be the boss. Like that wasn't necessarily my, my aim, but I did want to have a level of control over the circumstances that I was in and, um, control, not in the, like, I have to be controlled everything, but I very much want to say, like, I want to control the conditions of my own experience. And as much as I can control that, um, facilitation has created that where I'm like, oh, I can, I get to control it. And I get to create a space in which we all get to co-control. Um, that feels better to me that there's not someone telling us what to do, but that we're generating what we want to do. And from a pretty early age, I, I really enjoyed that. I think the other thing that I look back on is from a very early age, I was a pleasure activist or I was a pleasure, you know, I was pleasure oriented from a very young age. And like one of the, I think the main thing I do have memories of and that my parents, my mom tells stories of is I was always getting caught making out with other kids and like, you know, just very much like I love pleasure and being, (laughs) being with, being with, um, and being in a place of enjoyment and pleasure. And so as I've gotten to be an adult, trying to reconcile that with my movement work has really meant 
um, claiming it fully. So that, you know, the fact that you're like, oh, one of the first things I remember about you was the way you loved the Beyonce album. It was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I was like, this is giving me pleasure. I want to get on the phone and talk to other people about this and have it be something that we get to claim. Um, In the spirit of Audre Lorde, I really feel like there's a political impetus on us to understand what creates pleasure and what creates the erotic awakening in a self that uh, makes it impossible to settle for suffering. That's how she spoke of it. Oh, say that um, again, please, because that's perfect. So she says this, that once you have really fully awakened to the full erotic potential of yourself, like when you felt that aliveness running through your whole self, that the more awake you are in your erotic awareness, the, the less you will settle for suffering. And that to me has been one of my most transformative like lessons in life is that once I've known how good I could feel, and even like when I say good, what I specifically mean is how at peace I could feel with myself, how loving I could feel with myself, how free I could feel inside of real honesty, um, how powerful I could feel inside of my no, which I'm learning to say no, but how powerful it feels when I do a no that really matters, um, how thrilling it is when I say a yes that I really mean. Like once I've experienced those things, then it makes it so much more impossible, so so impossible to settle for suffering. So how did you pull all of these um obviously related and connected, but in some ways, at least on paper, disparate ideas and parts of yourself together (laughs) to make a life. Uh, Actually, no, let me not say to make a life because the life is made to make a living. I think that's a very practical question. And and I, you know, a lot of younger women listen to the show and I, I present these brilliant talented, successful women who have, you know, who are multi-passionate. And I think one of the most obvious questions, right? It's beautiful. But like one of the most obvious questions is like, okay, but how do you do all this and like pay your rent? Right. Mm -hmm. Because we live in a society that actually doesn't respect it, particularly in the context of capitalism, this type of knowledge work and emotional work and life. Yeah. Right. Um, well, you know, I have had a lot of younger folks ask me this and I've gotten it's it's kind of interesting, actually, because I'll have folks reach out to me and I realize like, oh, people don't see or they didn't see like the decade and a half, you know, of work <laughs> of like I did go and work for other people. I did go and take jobs. I was an executive director for five years. And I think when I think of my how, it's that I knew that facilitation and writing were such core parts of my identity that I did them no matter what else I was doing. And no matter, even if that meant like, um, you know, I had a full-time job and then was going on weekends to put in the work to also facilitate a meeting and make sure I got back by Sunday night so that I could still be there for my job or having to negotiate with my job Um, which was not always easy because they were like, we need you here. Um, And I was like, I know you need me here. And I also know that in order to feel fed as a human, I need to also be able to go do this other thing and really, Mm -hmm. you know, being in the struggle with, with that. Um, But there were jobs I had where I didn't feel like I was in my full dignity. And I think if I hadn't gone through those experiences and learned how to stand in those moments or learned how to walk away, um, learned how to feel epic failure and heartbreak in the movement, and then learned what it would take for me to still want to return to it after that. Um, I think if I hadn't gone through any of those things, I wouldn't trust myself to facilitate right now. The things that I'm holding Mm -hmm. now, I only have the skill set to hold because of all the mistakes and things that I've survived (laughs) in my past. So, you know, what I tell folks is to really approach your life as fertile ground from which you are harvesting all the time. And it means you have to be putting in seeds, putting in work, turning the soil, paying attention to what's changing in yourself all the time, um, paying attention to like when you're ready to take a risk. Um, Like when I went full time as a sort of consultant, you know, I was like, I'm going to do my own thing. I had had two jobs, two full-time jobs, basically, and Mm -hmm. I was just so used to working and having my success defined by how well I could do the tasks that someone else had given me. And I was very nervous um, about the idea of, like, stepping out on my own. And so taking that risk feels like, oh, that was actually a really big leap forward, Um, was taking the risk, putting myself out there and saying, I think I can do this. I think you should listen to me do this. 
So great segue into a little game, a very quick game. And this is how we'll close that I like to play here on the call, which is I ask you if, if this person called you, what would you say? Oh, great. And so, That's such a great you, team. <laughs> <laughs> right? And you mentioned Black women and you your work yeah. um, is focused a lot, not exclusively, but a lot um, on Black women. So I've got three powerful, influential Black women that I want to ask you what you would say if they called you, okay? <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> All right. So the first one is Queen Mother, Beyonce. What would you say if Beyonce called you right now? Um, I probably pee on myself a little bit Um, (laughs) first, (laughs) just like joyful peeing. Um, But then (laughs) joyful peeing, just a joyful, (laughs) playful, just a little like, oh, that was a surprise. And then I think I would um, I think I would just thank her. Um, I would be like, Beyonce, thank you so much for the um, continued willingness you've had to grow in public. Um, that we have watched you go from being a teenage girl to being a grown ass woman um, who has been through heartache and heartbreak and pain and motherhood and rumors and people trying to come for your shine. And you continuously model for us how you turn inward, make it into something beautiful and make it something that everyone has to contend with. And then you don't bring it back out until you're ready to do that. And to me, that that willingness to be like, I transform in public, but I do it on my own terms, um, I think is just really, really necessary for Black women right now. So thank you. Uh, that's amazing because I would mm-hmm. probably just start singing dangerously in love on the spot. Like I don't, I don't know <laughs> I that I would have like, formed or that. Or I would be like, tonight I'm gonna dance for you. You know, <laughs> right, like everybody. Like, I would just, I don't know what would actually yeah, happen. I love it. <laughs> okay, woman number two, oh, black right. woman well, number two, very, okay. very different uh, vibe here. Okay, but I'm curious, okay. especially in light of the news this week. Mm. Sister Amarosa calls you. Oh, girl, girl. <laughs> um, well, one thing is. Right in this moment, I I think the main thing I would say to her is it's never too late. It's never too late for your liberation. And you Mm. have given yourself um, so much, so much of yourself to um, the dark side. But even Darth Vader at the very end of his life took off his mask and wanted to be seen and wanted to be known, not just as a monster and not just as someone who was complicit with evil, um, but as someone who had a heart and who had a greater purpose. And so I think the main thing I would say to her is it's not, it's not too late unless you want it to be too late. You do not have to be a spectacle of anti-blackness, of internalized anti-blackness um, it, any longer than you you want to. And right now you actually, you just walked out of there. You can flip this story into something magical for you where you stood up to the man and you were like, fuck y'all. And um, they wouldn't have it. You know, I was like, you can make this moment uh-huh. whatever you want it to be. But mostly just that it's not too late. You know, you still have black skin and... Um, <laughs> to be, I'm just like in the apocalypse that will matter. Um, so, <laughs> you know, but I would tell her to just sit down, really read some bell hooks, some Zora Neale Hurston, some Alice Walker, mm-hmm. some Toni Morrison, just sit with some of these, these stories and, um, and go read the spook who sat by the door, you know, and just really, yeah, just spend some time reading and not on the internet. That would be my main mm. main thing for Amorosa. It's not too late. Just that's, do some studying, girl. That's really good advice. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and last but not least, <laughs> my favorite black woman of this entire list. Yay, uh, favorite. Give me what you would say to 27-year-old Adrian. You. Oh, 27. Damn. Um, I think I would say... enjoy it more enjoy it more enjoy it more like trust that everything you're learning right now is exactly what you need to be learning in order to shine in order to um get past this suffering um enjoy all the love you're getting to experience right now go to detroit as often as you can (laughs) um (laughs) you know, and, um, but yeah, enjoy everything more. Cause I, I do think that the one thing, like if I look back at my life is that there's, 
there was a lot of it that was so future oriented, even for me, you know, because I'm a sci-fi person, I can get very future oriented. And so I can always be looking ahead, ahead, ahead and not being like, wait, right now is also amazing. And right now I'm learning incredible things. And I think I would tell myself there's a few people that I've lost in the last 12 years um, Mm -hmm. that I would give myself a little whisper, like make sure you let that person know how much you love them because they're not going to be here as long as you think they will. That's really, really good. It's good advice, even though it's in retrospect for you, I think, to no matter where we are in our life journey, to remember that, to kind of stop and appreciate the moment, even as we're busy um, visioning the future, that there's so much beauty in, in, in wherever we are. Exactly. Exactly. Like, I, you know, that's the thing I feel like I'm experiencing right now is like, I don't really know how to deal, you know, there's not a way to say like, here's how you deal with success when it comes. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I don't really know how to deal even with the, the, the small successes that I'm having right now. But I do know that when I just choose to enjoy it and accept it for this being this moment, that it will pass also, um, then I'm able to have magical day after magical day after magical day. <laughs> so, Oh, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. You have made this day very magical for me. Oh, and you. you're going to make it magical for everyone who <laughs> is listening. What an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. And I've been listening to the others. You just are so good at this. And <laughs> it's great oh, to be in you. the podcast realm with you. You too. Uh, are you going to go see Star Wars this weekend? Absolutely. <laughs> Of course you are. I am so going to go see it. I'm going to see it this weekend. And then next week I'll be with my family. And I know that we'll all go see it as well. Um, But I actually, I really today, it just occurred to me today that I'm like, I love it so much that I think I actually need to just go by myself. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Do you know that sort of stuff where you're like, I think I just need to go by myself. And yep, yep. sit there and I did that with Girls Trip, actually. Exactly, right? <laughs> I'm actually going to go. I'm going. The the Read is my one of my favorite podcasts. And uh-huh. they're doing a live show in Detroit today. And that's my date for myself This today is I'm going to go by myself just so I can sit there and laugh and, like, be black and free. So. Yes. Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> well, enjoy that yourself. That might be the other thing I would tell my 27-year-old self is, like, girl, enjoy those days with yourself because... Um, I'm good company. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You, I think you learn that the older you get. Like I'm yeah. actually, I'm I'm pretty dope. I like me. Yes, I am the company <laughs> that I've been waiting for. Oh, <laughs> so, uh, okay. That yes. needs to go on the wall. That needs to go on the wall. <laughs> I gotta remind. I say that to myself every day. Yes, I love it. That's our mantra. <laughs> Thank you, Adrian. Thank you. I told y'all I was gonna nerd out. I hope you did too. It was so good. Many thanks to Adrienne for talking to me on Star Wars Weekend and for calling all of us into her world. This episode was produced by the lovely Melody Rowell and published, as always, by Man Repeller. I'm your hostess with the mostest E, Erica Williams-Simon. And until next week, y'all keep imagining better worlds and always keep fighting, keep living, keep dreaming, and keep answering your call. Peace out.